Uh, we're turning to Isaiah chapter 53. Now, that's found right in the middle of the Old Testament. You know, there's four major prophets, and it's the first one, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. It's the first of the major prophets, and we are on chapter 53. Let us read. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hid their faces, he was despised. And we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet he considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, Yet, who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he had suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Our second reading is in Isaiah chapter 65, and verses 17 to 19, and that is found, if you have one of the Bibles, uh, 748. Isaiah 65, verse 17. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight in its people, a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. May God bless his word to our hearts this morning. 
Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that your word is truth, that your word even today speaks to us. And as we hear the prophets speak about a, a better king and a better kingdom, I just pray that help that to, uh, to, to bring that to our hearts and minds, that we can wait in hope of your future kingdom. And we, th- and we can be thankful and grateful for your coming king and the future glory. Amen. Happy Father's Day. Who had bacon, bacon and eggs? It's always too much on Father's Day to eat, but you, but you, you get through it. It's a, it's a, it's a burden I have to bear. <laughs> a few months ago, many of us witnessed the coronation of King Charles. Now. King Charles was the expected heir to the throne, obviously, of his mother, Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, he was heir apparent for a very, very long time. I think she hung on there because she didn't want him taking it. But um, she, uh, <laughs> she uh, he, he was very unpopular uh, for a while there after his many indiscretions and unfaithfulness. And many thought he would be perhaps an unfit king, that he perhaps should abdicate and, and his son, William, should perhaps take the throne. Uh, some commentators said uh, that, you know, when he became king, that it was the, the, really the monarchy is over with. It's really a, an unpopular thing. It's, 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 it's waning. It's seeing its last days. The kingdom really has lost. And the kingdom was really nothing like it was when the, uh, the British uh, kingdom uh, um, really took place many hundreds of years before that. We saw, we saw so much ancient ceremony and pomp during the coronation. I don't know if anyone's watched it for the 17 hours that it was on. But, um, you know, one of my favourite parts was the girl, she was literally holding a sword for like five hours. And I thought, that is unbelievable. That, she was the, the hero of the day for me. But um, there was jewels and scepters and crown and even a golden carriage, this fairy tale golden carriage that two 75-year-old people rode down the, 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 the cobbled path. With, but we watched, and the nation celebrated the crowning of a flawed king, who was who would not last on a temporary throne that will end. Many kingdoms have come and gone. All monarchs have this in common: they all come to dust. No matter how glorious they appear, they all return to the earth, and kingdoms are lost. Throughout history, there have been magnificent, glorious kingdoms that at the time you'd think that would never fall. But they have. They had all seemed unstoppable, but in the end they were, they were beaten and destroyed. There was Greece under, King, uh, under Alexander the Great. There was Rome after it. There was Assyria, Persia and Babylon before it. All have fallen. All are in history now. All are just in history books. They don't exist. They're to be dug up in sites. They are not current. And we don't know what happens to this current feigning empire, whether it will be eventually just go, but it's definitely just a, uh, a show now, not really a, a reigning monarchy. But Scripture reminds us that we all people are like grass and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the fields. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are like grass. 
The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So what about the kingdom that was promised by God? Well, before we look at that, let's have a look, a bit of step back in history as we do, as we've been covering uh, this series and and, uh, this very quick overview of, of Scripture. Let's have a look and see where it started. So when men fell, God gave that promise to the seed, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Ten generations later, God protects his chosen servant Noah and his family in an ark from the waters of judgment on the earth. From Noah's son Shem's line, we come to Abraham, who, out of a pagan nation where no one sought after the living God, God chose a man and makes a covenant promise with him. He says, look at the stars, so your descendants will be. As God promises to make him into a great nation, and through him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Abraham's grandson, Jacob, whose name is Israel, has 12 sons. And his son, Joseph, who was sold as a slave into Egypt, a pagan, idolatrous nation, but where God's people are kept safe from a famine. 400 years later, then God raises up Moses, who he saves from slaughter in a tiny ark that is put against the reeds. Through Moses, God brings his people out of slavery through mighty signs and wonders. There in the wilderness, God gives his people the law and they enter about to enter into the promised land. And the law is what they can live under his rule and they can receive his blessing. So he was preparing them to enter the promised land. But his people did not follow God's commands and they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Under Joshua, though, Moses' successor, they enter the land and they have the land, or most of it anyway. But God's people are rebellious and they chase after idols and they do not obey God's laws. God raises up judges to judge his people and then a king is chosen, finally a man after God's own heart. God makes a covenant with David and his, that his line and kingdom will have no end. He, he made the, there is a Davidic promise of a chosen king and messiah. Solomon, his son, builds God's temple. Under Solomon, Israel was whole. They were living in God's place. They were under God's rule. They were receiving God's blessing and they were blessing the nations through Solomon. People came from all around, the Queen of Sheba, people came to hear the wisdom of this great king who was blessing the nations. Could this be the king? Could this be the one that uh, they were talking about? But it did not last long. Solomon fell Solomon's sons did not obey God's laws and live under his rule, and the kingdom was divided. We have the northern kingdom, to the, um, which is Israel, and the southern kingdom, which is Judah. Both kingdoms are so greedy, so hypocritical, that the promise of the Davidic king seemed lost. God's people were shattered and scattered. So how was God to restore a shattered people? See, during this time, before and after the exile, where hope seems lost, the prophets speak. The role of the prophet in scripture is to be God's covenant enforcers and to declare God's judgment on God's people who disobey God's covenant. What other prophets only hinted at in the past, these prophets, they, they made it very clear and they, they were to bring clarity to God's promise. They speak of a new covenant, 
of God's people being living with God in a promised land, that God is still working and his plan is coming to pass. It wouldn't have seemed like that way as they were entering into exile, as they were being judged and about to be thrown into exile and their land is being destroyed. It wouldn't have seemed like God's promise was coming to pass. It would have been very contrary to what was actually going on at the time. But God will restore his people and they will not turn away from him again. The prophets promised that, that uh, there was a serpent crusher in the line of David and that this serpent crusher will be made manifest. Let's look at a, a, a verse in Ezekiel 36. Uh, Ezekiel, as uh, uh, Shane said, is uh, one of the major prophets um, there. Um, it's in the middle somewhere. I don't have the page number. <laughs> That's all right. It's after Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36, 36 to 27. 26 to 27. It says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I remove from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Let's flick back to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31. A couple of verses there, 31 to 34. Says The prophet says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with you, with my people Israel, and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them out of the hand, by the hand, and led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I'll put my law in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they, no longer will they teach their neighbour or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sin no more. What an amazing promise spoken in the midst of turmoil and exile that God will blot out their transgressions he will remember their sin no more he will be their, they will be his people and he will be their God forever how can God give his people new hearts and blot out their sins the temple sacrifices couldn't do it for, th- for hundreds of years that it didn't work they still fell away from God they still turned in their rebellion But to restore a shattered people, a servant king must be shattered. Throughout the Old Testament, we see that God's people fall into God's judgment because they were disobedient, but will live under God's blessing if they were obedient. That was the the type of covenant that God had with them. For God to remain faithful to his covenant promise, he needs to judge his people for breaking the law. He is a holy God. But as the ultimate goal is to bring his people under his rule and in his place receiving his blessing, his judgment cannot be the end of his dealings with them. The pattern of unfaithfulness must be broken. As we, as we have seen, though, man cannot keep their end of the bargain. Man cannot keep their end of the covenant. Isaiah tells us of a coming king, but he is not like the king they expected. This king is faithful. Not like Solomon, not like David. This king is faithful. Not like the kings of the past. Isaiah depicts 
the coming messianic king as a servant. Not what they expected indeed. The king is a servant. The lion is a lamb. Let's read in our text verse 13 of Isaiah 52. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. God's servant here succeeds in the task. He is obedient and faithful when God's people are disobedient and unfaithful. He acts wisely in faithfulness to obey God's law. But he is faithful in so much more than that. He is faithful in the task. There is still judgment due on God's people who have constantly broken his laws. Now for Judah, that was exile. They were about to go into into Babylon. But that cannot be the only thing that the prophet is talking about. Exile does not remove the stain of sin and disobedience. So we come to one of the most famous passages of, uh, of our faith in Isaiah chapter 53 from verse 4. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have turned astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There's a very severe lack of superlatives. Words are simply absent to convey how the God of the universe, most deserving of all majesty and praise, became a servant, chose obedience, chose a lowly status. What a worthy king, becoming our substitute, taking our place. Here we see the messianic king take the punishment that was due to us because of our disobedience, and in exchange... What do we get? We get the blessing. We get, we get what he, he deserved for his obedience. We get that. The punishment that brought us peace of, with God was on him. Can you see? God's promise is coming to pass here. What Jeremiah and Ezekiel were talking about, God is fulfilling. Where God's servant will take on the sins of his people and bear their punishment, and in exchange, God's people are reconciled back to the Father. Let us read verses 10 to 12 of Isaiah 53. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes him an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. And he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will be div- and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sins of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. What was the purpose of his suffering, of this great exchange, to reconcile God's people back to Himself? God's righteous servant will justify many and bear the sins of many. 
No other action could do this. No, not the continual flow of offerings of bulls and goats. Not the judges or the kings or the prophets. God's people always fell short. It is through his death and bearing of the sins of many that God's people are justified and reconciled. Isaiah 53.10 tells us that he will see his offspring and prolong his days. Death is not the servant's end here. This is a glimpse of resurrection. God has prolonged his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. The servant king here becomes the executor of God's will and plan. Verse 11, and after he has suffered, he will see light of life and be satisfied. The outcome, the result of suffering is not defeat, but it's victory. That the satisfaction, that of satisfaction, sorry, that of accomplishment. But won't God's people just continue to sin and rebel against God? It's been the pattern in the past. Won't this accomplishment just be for naught? We see a glimpse of the promise of that new covenant, of that new heart that God will give his people. Do you see? God has accomplished this completely as the maker of the covenant. God is the maker, the instigator of a promise. But he is the one who who fulfills the conditions of the covenant. He is the only one who ever could. He has fulfilled the terms, but his people receive the fruits and the blessings of that fulfilled covenant. What a wonderful truth. So the servant lives, the servant king. And now we can restore a shattered creation. God's people will live under his blessings, under his rule. But even now, as, as the prophet speaks to, the, to Judah, are they really living in God's place? We read the northern kingdom does not return from exile to Assyria. And even when, they, and when Judah returns, there is such a, only a small remnant that return. They, the commentators say that, only, that about 75% of Israel did not return. Only about 25% returned from exile. So it, we, uh, we call that the diaspora, or the, the, they were dispersed throughout Palestine. And, uh, uh, you know, we, we, when we read Paul of Tarsus, Tarsus wasn't Israel. Tarsus was, uh, uh, you know, was, uh, was up there a bit further. You know, when, when, the, when, the, uh, when the church grew in Antioch, this was, in, this was not in, in, in Jerusalem. The, the Jews were scattered abroad when they came in Acts 2. They came from all around. They spoke different languages. They never came home to their promised land. The promised land promised to Abraham and his descendants seems lost. Eventually they fell under Roman rule and the land was lost after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. The promise seems hopeless. So let's read our second passage in Isaiah 65, 17 to 19. See, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. Sounds of weeping and crying will be heard no more. Isaiah here is speaking to Judah and using descriptions that they would understand of how magnificent and glorious the new world will be. See, in Judah's hearts and minds, as they sat there in Babylon, they longed for their Jerusalem. They longed to see a flourishing, vibrant Jerusalem, full of majesty, 
full of rejoicing, a delight to its people. It was far from it. It would not be anything near what Solomon had and it's, it will never be what they dream it to be when they return from exile. As the people sit in, in captivity, their song is written to us to mourn with them. And their song rings out today and we can read it in Psalm 137. Let's turn to the 137th Psalm, which was made famous by a Bob Marley song, which I won't sing. I'll just read the scripture. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the, popul- on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the song of the Lord in this foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Isaiah's prophecy was a comfort to God's people awaiting a return to their land and long to see their Jerusalem. A comfort of rest and return to the land. But the rest from works and of the law. Mercy's uh, favourite verse is, is so striking here. He came to give us rest. Rest from works. Rest from the law. Rest from our own ability, striving to please God. Rest from all those works. God has accomplished that rest. There God's people will finally be in God's place, under God's rule, receiving his blessings. This is the culmination of the promise, all the way back from, the, from when God promised the new covenant, the old covenant, all the way back when the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. This is the culmination of that promise. It only took 66 books, but um, it's there in the end. The promise will finally be fulfilled. So as we wait for the kingdom, not a fading kingdom, not a kingdom of show and pomp that we saw on television those months ago, of crowns that will fade, but as we live as God's people in, his, in this world, how are we to live and respond? The Apostle Peter sums up our current state. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You were once not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles in this world to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans. Though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. We who were once far off have been brought near to him. We are now part of God's people, this promise. We are part of it. We have received mercy. Over the last few weeks, we have done a very broad sweep of God's kingdom's promise. We can feel lost about where we fit in in this plan. It's been another 2,000 years. But God is always active in the affairs of his people. The prophesied kingdom is the kingdom to come, and we're part of that. We too can look forward to that new place. But while we wait, we live as God's people here. 
Let us pursue godliness in a time of godlessness. We are Christ's ambassadors. We preach that message of reconciliation to the world. As Israel was a light to the nations and a blessing to the nations, we are that light today. We are that light to the nations. Let it not go dim. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your promise, your prophesied kingdom, your promised kingdom. We thank you that you have accomplished reconciliation from us to you, that you kept your covenant, that you fulfilled your covenant, and that we receive the blessings of your promise, that we are are at rest with you. Our spirits can have rest. Thank you that you love us and that you have called us. And we just pray that you help us to live like your people on this earth, to live like your light in such a dark place. Help us when we struggle to cling to you and your word. And we just pray that you be with us this week. Amen.